Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we discuss how data is creating our future. Specifically, we cover applications of analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. We discuss career tips for data scientists on how to lead and create value from data. And also, what are the current and future challenges in data science? In this podcast, we interview current leaders in the data space, such as heads of and directors of data science and data engineering, chief data scientists and chief data officers to find out straight from them what were the lessons they've learned in their careers which have helped them get to where they are today. My name is Felipe Flores and I have over 15 years experience in the data space where I've worked on everything from data warehousing to reporting and business intelligence to machine learning and artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy this episode. In this episode, we speak with Vlad Kazantsev. Vlad started his career working in visual effects and computer graphics for some major Hollywood blockbusters, which he tells us a bit about. He's then gone into data science, and he's now onto his second role as head of data science in the gaming industry. Currently, he works at Wooga. This company makes games such as June's Journey, which was Facebook Game of the Year for 2017. Other games they make is Pearl's Pearls, Tropicats, Jelly Splash, and a few others. In this episode, we speak about why it's important to follow your curiosity in data science and what that looks like. He tells us about the some uses of PyTorch, which is the second most popular deep learning library in, Pyth- in Python after TensorFlow. He tells us about considerations for the deploying machine learning models into production. We talk about the importance of speed in delivery, also how to keep innovating for your customers, testing and validating new features. He tells us about the semi-embedded model that he has. We talk about all this and much, much more. I hope that you enjoy the episode. Hi, this is Felipe Flores, and today I'm speaking with Vlad Kazansev. How are you doing, mate? Very good. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for making the time for the interview. Very excited to be speaking with you. And, you know, it's it's a beautiful, hot day in Berlin. <laughs> and, and you were saying that your, your office doesn't have much uh, air conditioning in, in some of the parts. Uh, so thank you. I'll thank you very much for making the time and uh, weathering the heat to do the interview. Thank uh, you, too. At the, at the beginning... Ah, no worries. At the beginning of the interview, I wanted to ask you, how did you get started in the data space? What was it that, that brought you into the area? So uh, the journey to data space wasn't very straightforward in my case. So I did study mathematics and probability series in university. I'm from Kiev, Ukraine originally, and I was interested in math and statistics early on. But my first part of my career, I actually was uh, involved in visual effects and computer graphics. So I worked on uh, some of the Hollywood blockbusters, including Avatar, Dark Knight, Happy Feet, uh, programming visual effects. And then at some point in my career, I wanted to expand my knowledge and I decided to do an MBA, Masters in Business Administration. I got accepted to London Business School and during my time at London Business School, I was very much interested in analytical marketing, in finance, in business modeling. And uh, during my internship, during my first and second internship, I was doing quite a lot of uh, data modeling. And I realized that I can utilize my programming skills. I've been using Python, Python since 2001. So I realized that you can use Python for uh, wow. business modeling and uh, statistical modeling. And 
I kind of start, was started to get really interested in that. And after MBA, I uh, got a job as a product manager at King, one of the main uh, game mobile game development companies. And while I was at King, I realized uh, the potential that data can have on developing those uh, consumer-facing products and mobile apps. And after King, I got an offer to join Product Madness, one of the biggest social casino gaming uh, companies. And uh, the offer was to help them build a data science department. So that was 2013. At least in London, not a lot of uh, people knew what data science is. To be honest, I didn't know myself what that is. So I was quite curious what I'm getting myself into. But since 2013, the journey was incredible. And I have zero regrets that I've jumped on a bandwagon of data science. And uh, I've been leading data science team at Product Madness for three and a half years. And right now I'm in Tuga in Berlin, leading a data science team here. So that was my journey in a nutshell, if you will. Tell me about your time working here in the movie. What were you doing there for the visual effects? So I was mostly involved in a shader programming. So I was developing a shaders. And a shader is a bit of a mathematical model that describes how the light interacts with the surface to create a specific effect to specific that defines how the surface looks like. So for instance, a shader for a glass would have to be a bit transparent. It should have some reflection. And a shader for a metal surface or plastic should have a reflection. Of course, it, it comes be transparent, but it might have a bit of translucency in it. And the way you program shaders, you kind of observe the real world and then you try to express uh, what you observe in a real world in terms of equations, in terms of mathematical equations. And that's actually quite similar to the modeling that we do in business, except that in visual effects, you don't have a well-defined cost function, if you will. You just try to make stuff look good and as believable. So you just optimize function just judging by your, your perception. And of course, in our domain, we can uh, have a test and train splits and you can actually evaluate how well your model fits the real data and how can it uh, how well it can predict the future but there are interestingly still some similarities between visual effects and data science so i was doing shader programming i also did a bit of lighting a bit of compositing a lot of uh, data pipelines as well so in visual effects uh, you do work with big data back in the day we didn't call it big data but we were of course working with terabytes of data when you want to render uh, one shot for avatar i i don't have a number in my head like how many terabytes of data you need to process, but it was quite a lot of data. And most of this data processing back in the day was actually done in Python. I believe it still is. That's incredible. So the whole data processing pipeline in, in Python, and you said that was in the early 2000s, is that right? 2004, 2006, uh, I have um, finished, um, I, I, yeah, I ended my career in visual effects, it was 2010. That's when I started business school. Fantastic. You know, when I think it was in about 2004 or 2003 that I first heard about Python, and everyone was saying that a lot of, or like what I heard was that a lot of scientists and engineers were using Python and they're finding it easier to program than some of the other languages like C++ or Java and things like that. And I remember thinking, oh, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't know if I'll ever end up using Python. And then <laughs> obviously here we are, like so much of the data science space is in Python now. Incredible. Yeah, actually, when I was just starting, I still have seen some Perl scripts lying around here and there, but most of the industry already switched to Python and was switching more and more process to Python. But at that point, in some uh, visual effects pipelines were still based on Perl these days. Amazing, that's incredible. And what, what made you think about doing doing an, an MBA? So at some point I wanted to learn more and I wanted to expand my knowledge. To be honest, I don't have a very clear um, answer to this question, but it's just curiosity. I always followed yes. my curiosity and I always followed things that I just want to 
learn. I think for most of data scientists, it's very important to, 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 to be willing to learn, to be interested in learning more stuff. And I just thought that, well, all this business stuff sounds interesting, all the finance and even accounting. It's actually quite interesting to learn about all those things. Do you think it has helped your career after, after doing the MBA? Uh, yeah, definitely. I wouldn't say that all data scientists needs to get an MBA, surely not, mm. uh, but it definitely does help, especially uh, once you start, when, once you want to progress in your career and you'll, you need to be able to talk to executives and you need to talk to CFO and your managing directors and to really uh, be able to understand how they think, uh, what are the main important problems. So it does help. But there are also some uh, very practical aspects that you will learn at a business school. It is uh, how to communicate results, how to how to just create a good presentation, how to then present it, uh, how to communicate to business. These are very important skills. And uh, probably a lot of uh, your listeners uh, have seen this Venn diagram hundreds of times, you know, the data scientist is those three circles. It's half, uh, it's one third software engineer, one third statistician or a machine learning expert, and one one-third business expert. And I think it's really important to be to, to embrace uh, this business aspect whenever you do data science, at least in a commercial setting. Could completely agree. I could not agree agree more. I think, as you said, like to being able to transfer, to translate the outcomes of a data science project into business outcomes and vice versa. I think it's a really, really important skill. And you, you studied statistics and probability theory at, at university. Did you do much machine learning back then? Back then, no. So I was I started my degree in 1999 and finished that 2003, I believe, 2004. So back then we, no, I didn't do any machine learning. And to be honest, I had to relearn most of the statistics that I'm using today on a daily basis. So the main takeaway from my first degree was pretty much I wasn't scared to read formulas with Greek letters. And I can see that a lot of people <laughs> just get intimidated by Greek letters. And once they see those formulas, they just would skip them completely. And we had to read so many of those uh, horrible looking equations back in the day. And you learn that to be honest, equations, they don't write them for other people to read. A lot of them just have to write those equations to get published. And um, that was pretty much my main learning from that. I, I can read those equations if I need to, and I'm not intimidated by them. But all the practical aspects, all the practical statistics, as well as definitely all the machine learning, I had to relearn once I actually started practicing that. And also the field evolving so quickly. I think if you learned machine learning in 2004, right now you probably have to relearn quite a lot of things. Definitely. And how did you do that? How did you relearn and upskill again? All the typical sources. So I did quite a lot of courses on Coursera as well as other MOOCs. And there are so many books right now. So I started with Wes McKinney book, I believe, Python, Data Analysis in Python as one of the first books. Um, yes. Then there was a great course from Washington University, I think Introduction to Data Science. And then, of course, Andrew and G courses. So back in the day, we had only Introduction to Machine Learning. And now he published a couple of more courses. So I would recommend to just go through as many courses and as many books as you want to. And, and another thing, about technical books, you should not read them from cover to cover. That's the wrong way to read a technical book. So uh, I have a Safari Online subscription that allows you to browse through lots of different books. For those of you who don't know, it's like Netflix for technical books. And you can just look through the table of context, uh, content, and uh, then pick topics that you're interested in. But basically, you need to be able to re relearn and learn more 
uh, on a regular basis. Once you stop learning, you probably already virtualize. You, you need to start again. That's right. Yes, especially with the speed that the uh, that the industry is moving in, and that's that's such a good idea to have the, the safari the safari online membership there because then you can get your knowledge in a just in time manner as you're facing the challenges is that right yes it is it is correct you can download any book that you want to to read so there is no paywall and it really opens up for stuff that you will be learning and sometimes you might end up learning things that you probably would not spend your money on or you would not start learning specifically but just because it's there you might just pick up a random book and then you might find something interesting there outstanding that's really good and what was what was one of the more recent things that you looked up or that you found in in that online learning library so currently i'm investing more and more time in um, using pytorch and learning pytorch so that's a technical resource that I'm mostly interested in these days. Um, of course, there is this fast AI course. For those of you who don't know, I can highly recommend fast AI, a great course on deep learning. And once you're done with that, then you can expand your knowledge and you can find more materials. That's outstanding. Um, can you tell us a bit more about PyTorch? What, what does it do and what have you been using it for? So PyTorch is a deep learning library um, for Python. Architecturally, it's based on a torch, but it's completely rewritten as far as I know. It's backed by Facebook. And right now, I think it's the second most popular library after TensorFlow for doing deep learning, for doing uh, neural networks. But it has some very critical key advantages over TensorFlow in some areas. One can't say that it's definitely better than TensorFlow. So there are some aspects where TensorFlow definitely is more mature and more production ready. But if you can use a PyTorch, you can prototype and you can experiment faster. And it's native to Python. So you can use Python debugger, which is really critical and kind of iterate faster and do a bit more sophisticated, interesting models than what you can do with Keras, unless you are willing to drill deeper and then go under the hood in TensorFlow. But then it's not as easy. And what type of applications have you been using PyTorch in? So in our setting, we analyze data from games. We analyze the playing data. So every, pretty much every single thing that a user does in our game, we record as an in-game event. So we have a series of those in-game events. And then depending on a scenario, you can apply machine learning in various ways. But in our case, most typical is a time series analysis. So we have a sequence of events uh, done by a player. Uh, the specific applications in our uh, domain would be to predict customer lifetime value. So we can make smart decisions about how much money we're willing to spend on acquiring a single customer, as well as doing in-game personalizations. So the typical models would be a churn prediction model to predict who among your customer base is likely to churn from the game and a propensity to pay predictions and to do other games personalizations. So you said propensity to pay customer lifetime value, churn. That's really interesting that traditionally, you know, they're, they're thought of as obviously they're sort of marketing analytics that a lot of people might think, especially in other domains, maybe, you know, finance or telco, that there would be sometimes generally relatively easy metrics to calculate. But in the, in the field of gaming, it's something that does need quite advanced machine learning models in order to be able to understand the customer behavior at a, at a deeper level. That's, that's really, really interesting. How, how long have you been using this type of approach to understand customers better in gaming? So we're using classical machine learning as well as statistical modeling techniques for a number of years now, uh, but our journey in deep learning is just starting. So deep learning models, and we are doing proof of concept, and we see some very promising results, and uh, some of the models outperform the classical approaches already. But on a deep learning path, we are really just starting. So all I can say is that for custom lifetime value, we're definitely going to switch 
and because the proof of concept deep learning model is already performing better than our legacy or our classical approach. For other applications, yes. we're still experimenting and uh, to train and to maintain deep learning model at the moment, it still takes more efforts. It's still not free. You st it still takes more longer time to train those models as well as those models are a bit more complex, but uh, the industry is moving so fast and the frameworks are maturing so fast. So a year ago, it was much harder to train. Two years ago, it was really hard to just to get your environment set up and running. Right now, the environment, the libraries, this layer, at least it's solved. And now it's just up to us to experiment and find the best model. What type of uh, infrastructure do you guys have to run those type of prototypes and experiment? Do you do it on the cloud or in-house? Mostly on the cloud. So we try to move all the data science to the cloud. So even if our typical, without talking about deep learning and more advanced approaches. So we have a shared Jupyter server that all data scientists have access to that allows us to synchronize the environment, that allows us to really achieve reproducibility. And if uh, someone is not in, in the office, you can still find someone else's work and then pick it up from where the person left. So that is super convenient. For deep learning, while we have some GPUs on, uh, some data scientists have laptops with GPUs, but it's not, um, not everyone has that. And we definitely don't want to replicate the environment. So the environment setup is again a problem. So currently we're using Paperspace. It's a GPU-based uh, provider to do our experiments oh, with um, deep learning. We also have access to Amazon. So uh, we have quite a lot of services on AWS. Ah, oh, fantastic. That's that's really good. And tell me, how about putting the, the machine learning models into production? How how do you guys do, do that? Yeah, that's been a favorite question for quite a lot of people recently at our company. So we are right now rewriting <laughs> our personalization engine uh, we had a previous system that is very advanced. It can run models on a real-time data streams and can um, so the game can trigger those machine learning models at real time, pretty much at any point in time. But that system proven to be very hard to maintain. And also the, the amount of data that we can put in the system, also uh, it was technically very challenging. So we are right now re-architecting our personalization engine. And currently we are finalizing our batch layer. And the second step, we will re-architect and re-implement our real-time layer. So we still can use our legacy system for time being, but to make it more extendable and more robust, we need to invest more in it. But overall, right now, this platform is built in-house. We evaluated a couple of third-party options because one part is running the models. Another part is actually making changes or taking actions based on the model. So the segmentation, the marketing-facing segmentation engine, as well as offers and personalization system, that has to be integrated very deeply into our games. So the third-party solutions that we have evaluated, they had all of them had few options, few had features that were missing. So right now we are re-architecting everything. It can be a very hard problem. However, quite a lot of treatments, you can run models in a batch mode overnight, and you can extract almost all the business value as from a real-time predictions. Of course, there are exceptions, but quite often you can simplify a system dramatically if you simplify your architecture and instead of running your models on demand, pre-calculate things. I know it's not too sexy, but actually it works and it allows you to move faster. And more importantly, it allows data scientists to, to deploy more models in production and allows them to debug those models easily. So from my perspective, the system that allows data science team to move faster and to experiment faster in the models would be better, even so it's not as sophisticated as a real-time system. What type of games do you do you guys make? So we uh, do casual games. Uh, our biggest game is uh, right now June's Journey. It's a hidden object game. It's been named Facebook game number one, uh, Facebook game of the year last year. But however, actually most of our, our biggest platforms are of course mobile. So iOS and uh, Google. 
Google. Uh, we have also Tropicats, which which is a match three game. It's uh, one of our newest games, and our uh, well best known games would be Jelly Splash and Diamond Dash. They are again in the casual sector, but those games are quite old. They still have a very significant user base, so a lot of people still enjoy those games. Amazing. And uh, do you do you use the the data analyzed in uh, from the gameplay? Is that data then used to create new games or to improve the the games itself? And how is that done? It's both. We operate uh, games as a service, so that's a model. So first you release a game, and once you release the game, the journey just started. So after the release, if the release is successful, and if the game is doing well, normally you need to put even more people on the game teams. You need to have more development resources and you need to have more artists to keep improving the games. And it's super critical in our business to keep the games fresh and always up to date and always interested and always to have something exciting and new for our players. And the data is very critical here. So a lot of features that we launch needs to be tested. We need to validate that whatever we're launching actually does make sense. It does improve the game. And these learnings can then be transferred to other games. That's right. And how do you, how does your team work with the other parts of the company to make those changes and to bring to life the results that come, uh, that are found from your team? So we operate under what we call a semi-embedded model. And just the team structure, I think a lot of data team structures are evolving in different companies and different companies solve this problem differently. We tried various approaches. So our recent, our current approach is the following. We have the centralized data science team, but within a team, we have team members who specialize in either a specific game or in a business domain. So we have one data science who specialize in user acquisition and marketing. We have data scientists who specialize in specific games. And what it means is that they are dedicated contact persons for ongoing business problems that any of the specific teams are facing. So they have a person to talk to, to discuss, to get an advice from. For roadmap or for big deep dive projects, we try to operate as a one single team as much as we can, which means that we can do project collaboratively and we can pair people together to work on a bigger projects. So that's that's how we operate. I also a big believer in a data, data democratization and creating a self-service tools for the business. So we invest quite a lot of time in making sure that all the decision makers have necessary tools to get answers to most of the decisions that they face on a daily basis. So we are not end up being a bottleneck for operational data analysis. So people can make decisions, people can work with data, they can uh, get their questions answered. And if they need either a new tool or a deep dive research that does require some complex data pre-processing or some modeling or some advanced statistical techniques, then they would approach and ask data science team for help. That is excellent. That's excellent. And what what proportion of your team is dedicated to working on the self-service tools versus the, the rest of the work? So generally the work and the typical a week of a data scientist, in ideal case, should be split 30-30-40. Uh, 30, 30, so 30% working directly with business, helping the business make operational decisions and advising them how to interpret data that they acquired from one of the self-service tools, or maybe helping a product manager to write this complex SQL query. So 30% of the time, I think it's healthy for data scientists to still be involved in operations. Some data scientists, I must, I must say, are not very fond of this work, but some actually do. And we also try to hire people who are interested in the business as well. It's very easy to go uh, to hide in an ivory tower and do very complex analysis that actually no one will need or no one will use. So it's very important for us to be close to business. But that's just up to 30% of the work. Actually, if it's more than 30% of the work, it's also, it's, it's not good. And we try to solve it, we try to address this problem. 40% of data scientists' time needs to be spent, at least at Wuga, needs to be spent on solving, on working on a deep dive research projects. 
So it's really answering big and impactful questions or building predictive models that have a big potential, have a big impact on a business. And uh, the rest, 30%, are engineering. So if a data scientist has built a model or has built a segmentation uh, that is valuable, then it's up to data scientists to push this thing that he or she built into production so that it's used. So we work together with data engineering team, making sure that we have a platform and tools in place that data scientists themselves can deploy models, can deploy segmentations, can alter data processing. So if the data scientists realize that in order to create this model well or to create the segmentation, we need to change the way we process data on a daily basis to affect our ETL, data scientists needs to be able to make those ETL changes, him or herself. So that's how uh, we try to split our work. Of course, reality can be very different. It also depends on what kind of tools we have for self-service analytics as well as for the engineering. But that's what we are trying to get to. We want to get 30% ad hoc analytics, 40% deep dive research, so proper data science, and 30% engineering. I love that approach. I love that approach because it means that the the people in your team are being exposed to the the full gamut of what data science is. You know, it's like end-to-end data science from dealing with business, helping them translate questions into technical speak, helping them uh, answer those uh, those questions that they have, and then doing the the as you said the deep dive research projects, working on something very deep, and then seeing that work go all the way into production. It's outstanding. How how did you get there? How what led you to making your team work like this? So. Uh, you're absolutely right uh, that I'm a big believer that what makes data science teams unique is this ability to take the project from the inception, from the idea, and then work on this project all the way up until the end, all the way up until the point where this model or this new segmentation or these insights are actually used and generating value for the business. So I think that's what makes data science unique, because if you think about what data scientists are, what data science teams can do, in a lot of organizations, there was a separate there was a big data teams, there was a warehousing teams or a database teams, and there were statistics teams. And of course, there were a lot of engineering teams. And what data science teams, what, what they make them unique is that they can actually take this project and execute it fully without coordinating the roadmaps and those gun charts across different teams. So because we are one team, we can be very effective in creating uh, this project and running with these projects. So how did we approach it? I think we touched on uh, upon those points um, in the past already, but basically you need to have a good self-service tools, because if you don't have good self-service tools, then your data scientists end up to be operational data people. They will be writing all SQL queries for the business. They might even be asked to populate some spreadsheets and what's not. They will be asked to do all the data operations in the company if you don't have good self-service tools. We're also very fortunate that most of our data, uh, we generate most of our data ourselves, which means that we can put it in our uh, big data warehouse and it's quite well structured. And then uh, we can access most of our data using simple SQL. And I am a big believer that in a company like Wuga, a data hungry company like Wuga, a lot of people needs to know at least some SQL. SQL is not going anywhere. At some point we thought, oh, maybe it's an old language and maybe we need to do something new and there was new SQL, no SQL or something else. But I think SQL is not going anywhere and it's very critical that you have other people outside of data teams who have some knowledge in SQL and you also have tools for them to use. So we have also a web hosted tool that allows everyone a company to query our data that stores in our data warehouse. So any product manager or marketing manager from day one 
they can log into this web-based tool and they can already start querying the data. And you need to have a good dashboards that allows everyone who needs to get answers quickly. So majority of the questions, you don't need to write SQL. You can just get the data from our interactive dashboards. So we invested quite a lot in a self-service tools and data democratization. And that allows data science team to spend most of the time doing more complex things and focus on our core capabilities, which is combining engineering and statistics and business domains together. And on the deploying and productionalizing side of things, we are working very closely with data engineering team, making sure that we have those tools and process in place that allows us to schedule ETLs, to add to ETLs, to schedule the models, and uh, to also deploy our tools using the platform that they provide. So data science team can work quite autonomously and be quite productive without, again, those external dependencies. So I guess on both fronts, it's really you need to work hard on, on dependencies and minimizing dependencies and, and, and empowering people to make decisions as well as empowering data scientists to productionalize data science work. I love that. I love that. Uh, reduce dependencies, empower people. That, that definitely <laughs> leads to very efficient work. Had you had that approach in the past? Like when you, when you because you've been head of data science before, you've led teams before. When, when did you develop the approach that you have today? I definitely used a similar approach in the past. How it evolved, country, say for sure, I think it kind of evolved over time. At Product Madness, we started without data engineering teams, like in quite a lot of companies. You know, uh, executives attend some data conferences. They realize that we need to so sort out this data science thing. So they start hiring data scientists. Data scientists come on board. They realize that actually they don't have a good big data data warehouse or big data platform to work with. So data scientists end up creating data platform, which is not the best thing for data science to do. So then we start hiring data engineers as well as over time improving our self-service tools. And at Product Madness in the end, it worked quite well. So we did build quite good self-service tools and data platform from the ground up. It was designed to some degree by data scientists for data scientists and data engineers. Some of them might not be super happy because you're inheriting something that data scientists have initially designed. And of course, uh, any true data engineer would look at this mess and complain that it's quite horrible. They need to refactor everything. However, that was a very flexible platform. So at Wuga, the story is quite different. So the Wuga approach it from the engineering side of things. First, they built BI team that was responsible for running big data pipeline. And then they started putting data analysts and then later data scientists to extract more value from all the data that they are collecting. So from on one hand, we have a very much stronger data engineering platform. But from the other hand, we have to work more with data engineering team to create those tools and processes that allows data scientists to be self-sufficient and to empower data science teams. And data democratization, to me, it almost sounds obvious that you need to have those tools in place once you see that actually product and marketing managers, they are willing to get answers to the questions themselves. And some of them are willing to write a little bit of SQL and they are not scared by that once you once you saw it happening it's almost sounds like no brainer that yeah sure you should allow everyone who needs uh, to access this data have access to all the data data that they need for their daily job and you don't need to put any walls between decision makers and data that's a really great approach did you have to do any data literacy training or to to train people uh, non-technical people train them on sql and data a little bit yes How yes of course that? Th that's a very good point yes of course you need to invest in a training and and we had uh, SQL courses, internal SQL courses, as well as we had a course or introductions into our main self-service tools and our dashboarding tool. 
So to really uh, show people how to use this tool so they are comfortable with that. But yes, you do need to invest in education for sure. And did you find that the people in the company were happy to learn those skills and to take on those challenges and, and start answering questions themselves? I'd say most definitely. Of course, there will be some resistance. And of course, some people will be more comfortable with that than others. So that's inevitable. And that's absolutely fine. So the way uh, we address those ad hoc operational questions, so we use Slack internally and we have a channel data helpline and we encourage people to post their questions there and then we can ans uh, answer those questions. So it could be either someone is writing a SQL query and some three-level join doesn't work or the query takes ages to complete or someone is trying to understand the meaning of some data on our internal interactive dashboards and something doesn't make sense. So we encourage people to post those questions on a unified Slack channel. Therefore, both data science teams and data engineering team can answer those questions. But what we actually started to observe more recently is that quite a lot of people not from data teams would be answering questions. So you might have one product manager from one game asking a question and then another product manager from a different game answering those questions. And that's actually is very, very healthy and very helpful. And that's actually, I think it works really well. That is outstanding. Yeah, to, to have created an internal community that is data literate enough to be helping each other out. That's, that's the dream. Well, <laughs> that's of course it doesn't, really it's great. not all, um, there are still some problems, but generally I think it works pretty well. Yes, no, of course, of course. There's always, there's always problems and there always will be problems, but I think it's a, it says a lot about the, the culture of, of your company to have gotten the, the data culture to that level. So that's, that's that fantastic. And to some degree, at least at Wuga, I was lucky enough to inherit quite good data culture to begin with. So no one was questioning the need to run experiments, to use data for decision making. Also, a lot of people already knew data. So data culture is definitely very important. How, how does your team react to the fact that they have to work across this end-to-end -end data science um, with dealing with business, solving their problems, taking it into production? Was that something that was natural for them to do? Was it difficult? And how, how did you go about implementing that approach with them? I probably say that for most of them, it is quite natural and most of data scientists are quite happy to be able to provide end-to-end -end solutions. Some data scientists are just naturally more interested in doing data exploration and more comfortable or even interested in figuring out why their Docker container build is failing and they need to change some ODBC credentials for this to work. However, this is part of the job. And I think just the fact that they can provide end-to-end -end solutions, it still outweighs those some, some of the drawbacks and some of the pain that they have to go through in order to productionalize that thing. So it also depends on uh, when we hire people, we test ability to code and ability to program as well as willingness to deploy and to build end-to-end -end solutions. But all people are a bit different. So some people are more natural in doing end-to-end -end solutions. Some people prefer to do more on a just research, to stay on a research side. What's important is that as a team, we have all the three uh, skills covered. So we are able to understand the business, we are able to break down the business problems, we are able to build the models, and we are able to productionalize the models. So as a team, it's very critical that we have those skills, while some members of the team might be more comfortable in certain areas. And that's absolutely natural. And also, given the current data science market, while a lot of companies try to hire experienced and senior people, the fact is that in a lot of companies, a large percentage of their data science teams would be junior people. That That's fine. And that's absolutely, that's good. So as long as people are willing to learn, they are willing 
to implement and to build the solutions end-to-end, then it's great. And when you are hiring new people, how do you test that they have the three skills to be able to work on the business, do the data science, and take it to production? So the hiring process, for us at least, it starts with a coding test. And the reason why it starts with a coding test is not because coding is necessarily the most important part, but it's in a way easiest to test. It's easiest to send a coding task and then evaluate whether it's good or not. And then when we invite people for, and that's an offline test actually. And then once we invite people for the face-to-face, then majority of the time we spend on uh, business cases where we present a business case and ask a person to break down this business case, how the person would approach this business case. And then in the process of breaking down, we can go into discussing more analytical aspects of the case. So then we can discuss how would you measure statistical significance on uh, that specific approach or what modeling approach you would use if you are to if you want to personalize your game. So what kind of is it a regression model you want to build or if it's a classification, why are you doing this way? How are you going to evaluate the performance of this model? So those questions we normally address uh, during face to face. So that, that's our approach. And is, it, is the team, the existing team, uh, very involved in hiring new team, uh, new team members? Yes, uh, everyone in the team are participating in the interviews. So depending on, of course, the bandwidth and how many, so it depends on the bandwidth and depending on availability of the people, but generally all the team members are involved, can be involved in the interviewing process. So it's definitely not just hiring manager or only senior data scientists. So junior people also take part in the interviews from day one. Outstanding. And you mentioned that in, in a lot of other places, which I, I completely agree, in a lot of other places, people, when they're looking to hire, they want senior people or they expect people to come in with experience. And why do you think that is? Well, of course, it's just much faster to get people up and running if they have those experiences. Also, depending on your team composition, so if you don't have enough senior people on the team, it, it's hard to support and to train relatively inexperienced people. I think if you're if you're early in your career, it's definitely worth looking for a place that has enough experienced people who would be able to mentor your development and to able to teach you on a job. So if you're, you'll be working with other junior people, you need to question yourself how much you can actually learn on this job and maybe prefer a job where you can see that actually the general seniority level of the team is a bit higher. So it's a balancing act. Reality, of course, can be a bit different and sometimes we can't have achieve, can't achieve the balance that we are striving for, uh, but at least that's what we try to get to. I, some teams uh, that I've seen somewhere, they only hire senior people, and I'm not entirely sure why is that so. So all the teams are different. Some teams that have a lot of remote members, it's also much harder to support and mentor people if uh, you allow a lot of flexibility for for your senior people. At Wuga, we have some flexibility, but most people would be working from the office in Berlin. We have a very nice office, and we are very lucky that we have everyone in the same building. So we have three floors in one building. All the marketing teams, all the development, all the artists are all here. And that, I believe, is actually part of our competitive advantage. But we have some flexibility. So you can work from home a couple of days per month. But if uh, you have a large chunk of your team working remotely, then it's harder to support junior people. So in those teams, they probably would go for more experienced people when hiring. I agree that having having people co-located and being able to look each other mm-hmm. in the eye and you know point at the same thing, I think that definitely adds a lot a lot of value. This is really really interesting. I wanted to ask you about you know obviously you're in the in the gaming industry and we spoke a little bit about, about uh, deep learning. There's a lot of there's a, a lot of hype slash news slash progress of deep learning models being used to play games. So the the other side <laughs> of the the application that 
that we were talking about. Uh, what what do you think about those developments? How do you see them? So uh, first of all, we don't use any of those techniques uh, in our work. As far as I yes. know, from what I've seen so far, uh, the games provide a perfect training ground and perfect experimentation ground for a lot of deep learning models. So from that perspective, from just exploring what are the limitations and what are the capabilities of this technology, the games are absolutely fantastic. I know that some companies actually try to to use these techniques for actual business value. So and we also were talking internally like, oh, it would be so much easier to test our games and to also balance our games if we have a good deep learning agents playing our games. But it's really hard problem to solve and uh, we're just not there yet. Yeah, it's definitely games that provide a very interesting training experimentation ground. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. Awesome. So uh, now I would like to change change tact a little bit, and uh, I I would like to ask you some more, I guess, high level questions, and that that are more about advice uh, for the listeners and getting your your thoughts and your philosophy on on data science. And uh, the first one I wanted to ask you is, what do you think makes a great data scientist? I think first and foremost, you need to be interested in all things data science. So you need to be passionate and interested in the three aspects that makes a good data scientist, which is you need to be interested in technical aspects. You need to be interested in coding and programming and hacking. And you also, of course, need to be interested in statistics or AI or machine learning or other more academically heavy disciplines. Uh, But also you need to be curious about business domain or other sector where you specialize. So in our case, it's mostly interest in in marketing, modeling and uh, user acquisition, as well as as well as games. So for us, when we hire people, we definitely uh, want people who are interested in games. If the person is not passionate about games, mobile games and gaming in general, that's probably would not be a good cultural fit for us. But how do I generalize it? Yeah, I guess it's you need to be curious about what, what data science is and uh, everything that is related to data science. Now, I was I wanted to transition to desire to desire to improve your skills and desire to learn and new techniques. Data science, probably even more so than some other technical disciplines evolving so quickly that you need to be willing and very interested and passionate about learning new things. And what do you think makes a great data science leader? I think a good data science leader should be quite good data scientists, probably not the best, doesn't have to be the best data scientist ever, but still needs to be data scientist, as well as a, a good leader. <laughs> Unfortunately, I know it sounds a bit kind of simple, but I think all the typical things that make a, a, a good leader still applies for data, sci- data science leaders. So you need to be able to, need to be willing and able to listen to people, to understand where they're coming from. So be able to first understand before being understood. You need to be able to prioritize and uh, also make decisions. I think a good data science leader needs to needs to be decisive and to some degree also opinionated. So you, uh, people ask us for advice. They kind of sometimes think that we know the answers to a lot of questions. And to be honest, sometimes we don't. And a lot of questions that we are asking for, we have to reply to that. Actually, it's not a question for data science and there is not scope for doing data science. And you need to, to be able to understand those questions, to be able to break them down and to be, to be decisive and uh, to, to be able to, to be willing to, to work with business. I think it, it hits on, on all the right points. And I wanted to ask you, in your case, how how do you prioritize out of everything that can be done? How do you choose what should be done or what should be done first? So we have quite a structured system in place. So we uh, run a Scrum-Ban approach, so combination of Scrum and Kanban. Uh, we have our daily planning. Uh, sorry, uh, we have a weekly planning on Mondays where we look through all the main projects that are either on our plate right now or people asking us to do. We have a daily stand-ups. 
And then we have monthly roadmap meetings. And the reason why it's Scrumban, not not a Scrum, is because we do expect uh, interruptions and we do expect unexpected. We do we do expect some firefighting during the week. We do expect that people will be asking us questions that we are not even aware of uh, at Monday when we plan. So that's that's our approach. It works pretty well. How do we prioritize a big uh, items or roadmap planning? We just uh, talk to all the business stakeholders. So our roadmap is populated from three different sources. One is, of course, what business are asking us about. So it's whatever is most relevant things that they are working on. The second input is what we see is done elsewhere in a competition, when we attend conferences, when we talk to people from other companies, so from the industry, so best practices, because we definitely should be also proactive in populating our roadmap. And the third input is stuff that might not be yet done by the industry, but already started to emerge in academia, and we evaluate whether some of those approaches might already be applicable. Even so, some even so, other companies might not be sharing about those approaches yet. They probably will in a couple of years time, but they're probably still undercooked and they're not ready and they're too experimental. So that's how we populate our our long-term roadmap. However, most of the items are still coming from, from business, whatever is most relevant and interested, whatever product teams are working on, marketing teams are working on. Yeah, it's really important to build very good relationships with, with business. So what we strive to, what I'm really pushing for is that uh, people across the company are welcome and are free to pop up at our uh, data science space whenever they they want uh, instead of booking a meeting for next Thursday and then maybe something else happens. So I actually do like when people just come to our place and uh, start asking us questions. For that specific purpose, we have the whole wall uh, covered with whiteboards so we can brainstorm and talk to people on the spot. Quite a lot of those decisions, quite a lot of interesting uh, conversations are just happens at a whiteboard without a planned meeting. And in 10 minutes, you might be able to make a decision that either would take the whole hour to make in a proper meeting environment. So that's that's what we're pushing for. But in order to, to have that, you definitely need to invest a lot in those relationships inside the business so that people are, know that they are always welcome. They can always ask questions. So that, that's how we're trying to, to approach it. That is fantastic because that approach makes the, the data science team move at the speed of business. You know, sometimes data science teams are a bit removed from business and business has a very fast pace and sometimes data science teams have very slow pace. But in your case, you've made it so the pace is the same. How do you build those those relationships with the different parts of business so they feel like they can come and see you? They feel like they can come and interrupt you and that they will get value from that? So first, you actually, you can just tell people that that's what you expect. So it's okay to come and interrupt because generally, depending on the culture in your company, some companies, the culture, the office needs to be very quiet and all the conversations needs to happen in a meeting at appropriate time. So we actually, I have to tell people that it's okay for you to just come over and then we discuss a problem. So as I mentioned before, we use Slack. So sometimes people would ask a question over Slack and then I would say, yeah, just pop up at our floor and we can discuss it uh, with me and maybe a few other data scientists who are um, specializing in this domain. And uh, yeah, you just need to talk to people. You need to know who are your main business customers, internal customers, and you just need to invest in those relationships. So nothing nothing extraordinary here, I guess. You just need to be cautious about it and you need to make efforts to actually make it happen. And also you need to, yes, that's right. to, to pr- produce value. So when people are asking you questions, on, for instance, on Slack, if you reply to those questions quite fast and then they would say, actually, yeah, they're they are helping us. They're willing to help us. They are not just trying to hide somewhere and they are not sitting on their ivory tower and build some machine learning models that nobody has any clue about. 
That's, that's how you build relationships. Spot on. Like, I love that. Yeah. Uh, also, that's one thing, such, uh, such a great stand-up desks. Like, I highly recommend. So it's such a powerful thing. Uh, when somebody asks you for something, you put your desk in a stand-up mode, and then both of you can look at the monitor at the same height, and then there's a whiteboard just behind you, so you can always jump to the whiteboard, start brainstorming. So have a good office environment is definitely super important for this agile interactions and to really have this serendipity uh, in your business interactions. That is awesome. That is brilliant. I hadn't, I hadn't heard about that that use of standard desk with whiteboard combination. Yeah, That's very fantastic. powerful. Highly recommended. And another thing I wanted to ask you about is the, the imposter syndrome in data science. And by that, I mean that I'll, obviously, as we mentioned, data science is so vast and it's evolving so quickly that a lot of people sometimes feel that they're either not good enough or not good enough to do data science or that the data science that they're doing is not you know the most sexy the most cutting edge and they feel you know like they, they, there's people wonder whether they're an imposter almost <laughs> there, there's this imposter syndrome in data science what is do you think it's well first do you think the imposter syndrome is real and what do you think about about it in general it's definitely real I'm not sure if it's any specific to data science. Probably, as you mentioned, it's a bit more newer. So people, a lot of people don't really know what the expectations are. So unlike software engineering, for instance, expectations probably a bit more clear. Even so, there are probably quite a lot of people who still think that they are not a proper software engineers. And then there's this magical so proper software engineers sitting somewhere at Google or wherever and doing a proper software engineering. Whether it's specific to data science, I haven't really thought too much about it. To be honest, I do know that some data scientists are a bit more inclined to, to do more business and operational analytics because they feel that they might not have a PhD in a specific field or some things are probably too complex. So to that, I always say that PhD is definitely not a requirement for doing data science. Sometimes it can even backfire because some of the PhDs that I've met, they in tend to complicate things unnecessarily. Of course, not not all of them, but you definitely don't need a PhD to be a good data to do to be good at data science. And quite often, I'd say from my point of view, actually, coding experience can be even more important than advanced mathematical knowledge because quite a lot of models are already there. So you actually don't really need to understand every single thing about the algorithm, about the models, about the implementations in order to use them. And some people tend to not to use stuff that they don't fully understand. And I guess it's mostly uh, people who, who are a bit um, on a younger stages in their careers. They feel that, oh, you need to really understand. And as you gain more experience, you realize that you cannot possibly know everything. And you just have to try those different libraries, even so you don't know whether they are correct or not. Compare results, a sanity check results, see if the results make sense, and then just, just go with that. And just accept the fact that you'll be just quite a lot of work. You'll be just copy-pasting code from Stack Overflow that you might not be fully able to understand straight away, but it still works and you still can create value for the business. And in the end, that's the most important thing. So I'm definitely not advocating for not studying math or not studying linear algebra and statistics. Definitely do your studies, do your homework, but don't be intimidated and don't be afraid of using stuff that you don't understand 100%. Awesome. <laughs> really awesome. I mean, what, what do you think are the, the current challenges in, in data science? I think it depends on company and organization maturity. The challenges would be, of course, very different. So some companies are still quite 
early on on their journey to data science. So you, uh, one of the recent conferences I attended, a lot of people were referring to data science as well as to some degree analytics in general as a teenage sex that a lot of people are talking about it, but non, no one is actually doing that. I believe that company like Wuga or Product Madness, where I used to work in London, we were not there yet. We actually, I think we knew what data science is and how to use it properly. And maybe it's kind of related to impose a syndrome that you were talking about before, uh, that even some data science teams are thinking that, yeah, we're kind of doing data science, but probably it's not the real data science. And to that, I'd say most likely it is a real data science. Of course, I can't speak for all the companies, but the techniques and the modeling that we do from my perspective, yes, we're definitely doing data science and we kind of been doing that for a number of years now. And I feel that we know what we are doing. But of course, some companies are quite early on on their journeys and data scientists and data science teams, the challenge that they will be facing is that they would have to do a lot of explanation and a lot of expectation settings, as well as just explaining what data science is and what it is not and how to use it properly. So organizational challenges, depending on the industry, but I think we still have to evolve. And uh, then on the other side, the volume of data is just keeps growing. We get really much better at all this big data stuff, but processing data in real time and streaming data, it's still not a fully solved problem for quite a lot of companies. So, and of course, the whole deep learning thing that we talked earlier about, technically, we're, there's still a lot of challenges. There's still a lot of technical challenges that we'll have to solve before we can re- really extract lots of value from it before it becomes valuable for most companies without too much of infrastructure investments. Right now, you have to really think hard whether all those investments in the infrastructure, in the technology are actually worth it. And maybe right now, for some companies, the answer is no, it's not worth it. It's too much of engineering overtaking to implement those complex real-time streaming pipelines and then put some complex models on top. And those investments might not be justified. I believe that in a couple of years, for even for smaller companies, those challenges would be much easier to solve, especially with the cloud providers that are moving in the space and solving a lot of technical problems for us. And I think the problem that data science, one of the main challenges in data science for a couple of years already is to really find good use cases, is to find where we can apply data science to to add value. And that problem, of course, would not go anywhere anytime soon. So it's application. It's how do you apply it to actually help the business and to grow the business. Completely agree. Yes. Being able to find the applications and, and translate the business problem into technical, solve it and then translate it back. That's really good. And what do you see as the, the some of the future challenges in the data science space? What do you think are the challenges coming up? So first of all, the volume of data will keep growing as the Internet of Things applications will be become more and more uh, mainstream. And that would put even more pressure on our big data platforms and on data engineering. The data would also most likely be even more heterogeneous and uh, and faster. The second uh, question, also the second challenge, also technological, is deep learning is quite a new thing. And the smaller sized companies only now started to experiment and started to extract value from it. But it's evolving so fast that I don't even know what the, the future challenges will be. But definitely in adapting uh, the deep learning and uh, figuring out how to use this modeling, how those uh, use use those approaches um, in the future would definitely change how data science team work. I'm a big believer that it will increase productivity of data scientists a lot 
but data science teams most likely will have to adapt and change something. And then there are questions about ethics and privacy that are becoming even more important these days. So uh, here in Europe, we're all very well aware of the new um, privacy regulations that a lot of companies has to comply with. But even beyond privacy regulations that probably will become even more stricter in other places of the world, there's question of ethics in data science. I think it's super important and we also, as a community, have to work hard on it to to know what is actually ethical and when we can use data science. And actually, in some cases, we would be answering, no, we don't want to use data science in this specific area and we don't want to use the modeling or personalization approaches in those areas because we believe that it's actually not for them, not good for the the end user and not good for the customer. That is such a great answer uh, because there's, you know, data science is going to be, in my view, is going to be creating the world of the future through all the algorithms and, as you say, personalization. And I think that there's it would be very easy for us as data scientists to allow some of the biases and, and sort of negative things from the old world, we could allow them easily for them to be put into the algorithms and, and affect the new world how in the same way that uh, the, the old world has been affected. So I'm so glad that um, that you raised that point because it's it's definitely, uh, anyway, I see it as a really, really important aspect of, of the future of our career. I, I only have uh, one more question for you. This has been so, so interesting and so much fun. The last question is, uh, I wanted to ask you for a takeaway for the audience, some piece of advice or something that you would like them to to think about. What what would you like to say to, to data scientists and people in the data space out there? First of all, it's super important in a data science career, as well as pretty much any career, is to pursue and follow your interests and your passion. Don't anyone force you into interests in their interests or in their passions. Find your own passion, find your own interest and pursue those. Second is about self-education. I touched on this point uh, multiple times already, but in data science, as well as almost all technical fields, it is super important. And uh, what's even more important is to set up a daily or weekly routine in which you can actually study. So sometimes in my experience, I noticed that I actually studied more when I had a longer commute. So I moved from London to Berlin and in London, my commute was 40 minutes. And that 40 minutes, I knew that every morning I have 40 minutes to uh, go through a lecture or read a technical book. And here in Berlin, for instance, I live so close to the office. It's only eight minute walk for me. So I have to adapt. I have to find a new daily routine that I can use to keep improving and keep keep studying. So it's not about just desire and passion, but you also need to be able to set up a studying routine and follow it. Much more important than I'm going to spend the whole weekend studying. And maybe it will work for one or two weekends, but it's much more important that you find a routine and you study a couple of times per week. Maybe it's only for half an hour, but it's ongoing. And that's, that's super, super critical. And a third piece of advice is be very selective about and try to try to find good companies to work for. So don't jump on the first opportunity. Don't uh, let any recruiter intimidate you and put you in a career or a job that you, you don't feel comfortable in and you feel that you would not be learning and progressing in a direction that you're interested in. So be smart about it. Right now, uh, the job market and the industry is very good. If you're a data scientist, you can actually select the company that you can that you want to work for. Maybe not your very first job, maybe not even the second job, but probably the second and third job, you can already be selective. So from second and third job in data science, you will be the one selecting the company and not the company selecting you to some degree. So be very selective, find the companies that where you can grow professionally, find people that can mentor you and can uh, facilitate your growth and the company where you can actually focus also on the areas that you're interested and passionate about. So that's probably my advice. That is brilliant. That is brilliant. And 
And that is a great note to end on. Vlad, I want to thank you so much. That was so much fun. Extremely interesting, insightful. Thanks so much for sharing all your wisdom uh, with all of us and for making the time to do the interview. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure as well. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.